Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Alrighty, guys, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52 is where we're at this weekend. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back there for you. That's our gift to you. Last Sunday, our scripture passage had us in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was there that we learned about the true humanity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. He taught us why Jesus was in his humanity, why he was so distressed and grieved and troubled in that garden. As you'll remember, the reason is due to the overwhelming reality of the weight and the wickedness of our sin. It's the wickedness of our own sin that was, was even too much for Jesus, even as the Son of, of Man, to sustain before He gets to Calvary. And, and that's why the Father sent an angel to minister to Jesus, to keep Him alive. Jesus' response and His reaction really is a testimony to why He is the only one who can be the, the Lamb of God to take away our sin. Jesus is the only one because He's, he's both the Son of God and the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is both divine and human. And why is that so important? Well, it's important because it's humans who sinned, right? We're the ones who are guilty. So a human must suffer and pay for the price of sin. So Jesus was human. And then secondly, since no human is perfect, God had to step down off his throne to make the propitiation for himself. See, it's only God who can satisfy God's wrath on sin. So Jesus, who is both divine and human, uh, that's the reason why there's only one way to heaven. No other man other than Jesus could be the substitute for sin. So last Sunday, Jesus walks into the Garden of Gethsemane. He looks into the cup that he must drink, and he sees both our sin and the Father's wrath couple of the key points that we talked about last week. Number one, in times of great stress, you are most vulnerable to temptation yourself. We talked about number two, how God says no to our prayers. Number three, we talked about how constant repetitious prayer doesn't deliver us from our own personal Gethsemane, but through it. And number four, we discussed how we can still choose to trust God even when we don't understand Him. So today's text is really Gethsemane's sequel here. Today's scripture passage reveals the incredible accuracy of Jesus' predictions of betrayal and suffering and dying and then walking out of His grave three days later. Jesus' betrayal and arrest in, in Gethsemane, they are in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark's account that we're going to go over today is is concise, 
Um, Mark focuses on the actions of Judas and also the arrest of Jesus. That's his focus. And this is also the last mention of Judas in Mark's gospel. Now, before we we dive into the text today, I I have to mention that we're familiar with the term innocent until proven guilty, right? Well, the Jews had a a similar legal system as well. They had many laws in place where someone had to be overwhelmingly proven guilty before they were punished, except for Jesus, right? He's the exception to the rule. All bets are off when it comes to the Holy One of Almighty God, And as we read and we study Jesus' arrest today and the trials over the next several Sundays, I just want you to be aware of some of these blatant laws that were broken. In fact, the, the Jews broke 22 of their own laws to arrest Jesus, and then Jesus went through three separate trials. So let me give you the top 10 here. Number one, there was to be no arrest if a bribe was involved. Number two, the religious leaders were not allowed to participate in the arrest. Number three, there were to be no trials before morning sacrifice or after sunset. We're going to blow through all three of those this morning. Number four, there were to be no secret trials, only public trials. Number five, there were to be two or three witnesses, and their testimonies had to agree on every detail. Number six, the high priest was forbidden to tear his garments during the trial. Number seven, the religious leaders could not initiate the charges. They could only investigate them. Number eight, the trial and the guilty verdict had to be separated by 24 hours. Number nine, the sentence could only be pronounced three days after the guilty verdict. And number 10, a guilty person was not to be scourged or beaten before his execution. Now that's the top 10. There's still 12 more that they broke. So all that to say, nearly every single detail of Jesus's arrest and trial violates all their own rules based in Jewish law. Why? Why was the arrest and the trial and the execution of this man named Jesus of Nazareth so blatantly manipulated? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Mark chapter 14, I'm actually going to back up to verse 41 to give us some context from last Sunday. Then he came a third time, so that's Jesus. Jesus came a third time, and he said to the disciples, he said, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, look, my betrayer is near. And while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, he suddenly arrived with, with him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. He said, the one that I kiss, he's the one. You arrest him and you take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately Judas went up to Jesus and he said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took a hold of Jesus. They arrested him. 
And one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. And Jesus said, have you, have you come out with swords and clubs? As if I'm a criminal to capture me. Every single day I was among you teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him. They ran away. And now a certain man, a young man, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him. And they caught a hold of him. But he left the linen cloth behind, and he ran away naked. Father in heaven, the psalmist writes, help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. Father in heaven, we have lots of wonders to ponder this morning. Please reveal these things to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Have a seat. Let's take a deeper look here, starting in verse 43. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, he suddenly arrived. And with him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all go out of their way here to say Judas is one of the twelve. Judas is one of us. Now, I don't know about you, but Judas really is one of the world's greatest mysteries. I mean, think about it. How is it that Jesus, someone that Jesus handpicked, someone who spent three years, think about this now, face to face with the Son of God, someone who has also preached the gospel, this man even performed miracles like the other disciples, and he turns around and he hates Jesus as much as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. The, the other 11 disciples, they cannot get over this. Jude, that's why they write it. Judas is one of the 12. They all say it. Each gospel writer is overly gracious here. I mean, don't you have some choice names for the Judases in your own life? Don't you have? Don't you? Yeah. Yeah, so do these men. But under the power of the Holy Spirit, they refrained so verse 43, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, he suddenly arrived. So it's at this moment where the 11 disciples, they realize who the betrayer is. See, they didn't have any idea who it was at that Passover meal. Now, Judas is the ultimate hypocrite. It's why, our, it's why we don't name our, our sons Judas, right? We don't even name our dogs Judas, <laughs> He is the ultimate hypocrite. This, this man had everybody fooled, everybody but Jesus. So the disciples, they see Judas, and they must, they, really, they must be beside themselves. Because behind Judas is an army. Verse 43, with him was a mob, with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So when Jesus told Judas... To go do what he must do during that Passover meal. Remember, he said, you go do it quickly. So Judas, he went to the religious leaders. The religious leaders then brought Judas to Pilate. 
And it was there where Judas convinced Pilate with lies and slander that Jesus of Nazareth, that he is a dangerous revolutionary. Convincing Pilate probably didn't take that much effort. I mean, can't you just picture or hear Judas say, Pilate, remember just a few days ago, there were tens of thousands of people who were hailing this man as the Messiah as he walked into town, as he entered Jerusalem. And Pilate would have heard about that. We call that Jesus's triumphal entry, don't we? Of course, Pilate, he, he didn't know that. But what Pilate did know is that, that he just squashed a, a political revolutionary named Barnabas, or Barabbas, excuse me, Barabbas. So Pilate, he's not going to take any, any chances here. So what he does is he sends a Roman cohort to arrest Jesus. Now, a legion, a Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. A cohort is 600 so scripture says that mob, the mob has swords and clubs. Your translation may say there was a great multitude or there's a, a large crowd of people. So just know here, these people are also armed. So not, it's not just the number of people. These men have weapons, swords. These are the regular weapons for Roman soldiers. Clubs, they are weapons that the temple police have. Uh, the temple police are the Jewish police. They don't carry swords. They, they just have these clubs. So we know that the Romans are there. We know that the temple police were, are there. Uh, we don't know how many temple police. We don't know the number of that, but there were many. Regardless, make no doubt about it here, this mob is well-trained and they are well-armed. Now, can you just picture the reality? Like, this is really happening. There's a group of 600 Roman soldiers plus an unknown number of temple police. We've got both Jews, Jews and Gentiles carrying swords and clubs to arrest one man. What does that tell you? It, that's right. They were absolutely terrified. Yeah, they are terrified. This mob also doesn't just include soldiers, but religious leaders as well, and a lot of them. In fact, look at the wording here in verse 43. The chief priest, the scribes, and the elders. So each group has a definite article. All three religious groups are there. Why is that so important? <laughs> because these religious people, these groups, they hated one another. But Mark's making a point. It's the hatred of Jesus that unifies them. Now think about that. It's the hatred of God that unifies religious people? Dang! Right? And even more baffling than that is that Jews and Gentiles, they are united for a common cause as well. All of mankind is, is united to kill the Lord God Almighty. The religious leaders, they think they have a perfect plan. Pilate has guaranteed that there's not going to be a riot. He is ready to squash any resistance with deadly force. So in verse 44, his betrayer had given them a signal. He says, the one that I kiss, he's the one. You arrest him and take him away under guard. Now, how wicked is this? We, we talked last week about how our actions prove what we believe about God. 
Well, how's this for an action? Why such a dramatic, blasphemous signal? Well, first, it, it really reveals the detestable darkness of Judas's heart. And then secondly, we have to ask the question, don't the religious, why, why, why do the religious people need a signal? Don't they know what Jesus looks like? Well, yes, yes and no. Jesus looked and dressed just like any other Jewish man, but it is the middle of the night. And if you think cottonwood is dark at night, try first century Israel. Scary dark, right? It would have been nearly impossible for the soldiers to pick Jesus out from the disciples. So that's why, according to John 18, 3, the mob also brought torches and lanterns. So these men carried torches and lanterns because they thought they were going to be on a foot chase after Jesus. Plus, the religious leaders were probably ready for one of the disciples to stand up and act as an imposter for Jesus so Jesus could then go run away. So these guys are ready for anything. Verse 45, so when he, that's Judas, when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and he said, Rabbi, and then he kissed him. Don't you hate when people act like there's nothing wrong in the relationship? Don't you hate that? That's what Judas does here. The picture is that Judas is delighted to see his quote-unquote teacher. And even though Judas calls Jesus rabbi, his actions prove that he did not learn a thing from Jesus. The Gospel of Luke tells us this. Jesus said to Judas, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus calls him out on it before he even does it. A kiss, obviously, it's a sign of affection. It's also a sign of honor and respect. And it could be administered in a couple different ways. For example, slaves at the time, they kissed their master's feet. Subordinates kissed the hands of their superiors. And equals kissed cheeks. So Judas most likely kissed Jesus on the cheek. Evidently, Judas considers himself equal with God. Go figure. Now, remember the story of the burning bush. Exodus 33, 18, Moses said, please let me see your glory. And God, this is what's called a theophany here, guys, theophany. Um, this, is a, this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ talking to Moses. So God said, Jesus said, I'm going sh- to cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name, the Lord, before you. I'm going to be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, but you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. And yet, Judas betrays God by not just looking at the face of God, but kissing it. Secondly, it's not shocking here that Judas ignores the social protocols of his day because a disciple does not kiss his teacher. A rabbi first kisses his disciples, and then the disciple returns the kiss. The Greek text here says, kissed him much. Judas kissed Jesus much. So, 
Judas embraced Jesus. He gave him a hug, and it's like he grabs a hold of, a hold of Jesus, and he kisses him repeatedly. The, the picture here is, is when the prodigal son returns home to the father. So you think, wow, Judas is, <laughs> he's quite the actor, isn't he? Somebody better give this guy an Academy Award. Judas wants everything to appear normal up to the very last second when soldiers rush in to arrest Jesus. Now pause, because this is an amazing scene. Think about this. It's the middle of, the, of a spring night. It's probably between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. Passover moon is full. The clouds are reflecting the moon's light. John's gospel tells us it's a, it's a cold night. So here they are, everybody's here, in the middle of an olive grove. And you've got these olive trees casting these creepy shadows all over the garden. It's the darkest part of the night. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Now Mark doesn't mention what happens next. We've got to turn to the Gospel of John to find out. Jesus asks, who is it that you're seeking? In other words, Jesus wants to know what name is on the arrest warrant? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. I am he, Jesus said. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and they all fell to the ground. In other words, Jesus said the words, ego eimi, I am. Jesus obviously proclaiming his deity to the mob there. Specifically and especially to the Jews. The words I am, they, they, they also first appear in that story of Moses and the burning bush. Once again, Moses encounters a holy God, the theophany there, the, uh, the pre-incarnate Jesus. He has a conversation with him. And Moses asked what God's name is. And Jesus simply says, God says, I am who I am. And from that time forward, the I am um, becomes the special name that, that the Jews used for God. Now, how do we know that this name is so special? Because we see the consequences of the name itself. We see the holiness of God in real time here. John 18, 6, when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and they fell to the ground. Now, can you imagine that? Watching nearly 600 Roman soldiers plus all the temple police, plus all the religious leaders fall to the ground simultaneously. I mean, they could have had up to a, a thousand people there that night to arrest Jesus. And I read this story and I just have to wonder, like when Jesus said, I am, like, was there just a little bit of glory from the, from the transfiguration that just kind of shot out, you know, and they got to see just that burst Really, it had to cause like this holy terror. John 18, 7, he asked them again. He said, who is it that you're seeking? So, we've got Marines. We've got the Navy SEALs. We've got the politicians all picking themselves up off the ground, right? And Jesus confronts them again. Hmm. Now, do you think anyone wants to answer that question? Can't you, can't you just see people doing this? Uh, 
looking at one another like, you, you answer it. So what's the message to you and me so far today in this text? What's Jesus, what's his message to his church from the word of God so far this morning? What does this scripture passage teach to the whole world? Number one, it teaches that nobody arrested Jesus. If Jesus didn't want to be arrested that night, no one could have seized him. The message to everyone is that Jesus is the one in charge at that moment. Not the, not the soldiers, not Pilate the politician, not the religious muckety-mucks, no one. He's in charge. And Jesus is only arrested because of his submission to the Father's plan. So John 18, 7, Jesus asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Uh, Jesus, Jesus of, of Nazareth. I told you I'm he. So Jesus proved his divinity the first time he answered, and now he's proving his humanity by letting these men know he is the one that they're searching for. So back to our text in Mark here. Verse 46, so they took a hold of him and they, they seized him, they arrested him. Now, Mark doesn't record any response from Jesus as he's being arrested, but we can take an educated guess here that Jesus offers no resistance. Jesus, he doesn't get angry. He knew this was going to happen. Uh, Judas also vanishes from the story in the gospel of Mark, but not from our memory. Verse 46, literally, the, the text reads, the Romans laid hands on him. So we have a lot of ironies that begin here. The irony at this moment is that Jesus has been laying his hands on people for the past three years. Why is that? He healed them and he gave them a blessing, right? The Romans, they lay hands on Jesus violently. They seize him, they start tying him up and they arrest him. So a question, what's the charge? Why are they arresting him? What did Jesus do? The charge is his holiness. See, we can't have God himself walking around with humanity. He's just making us look bad. One of those who stood by drew his sword and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Well, if we don't know who Mark is talking about here, we can pray, you know, if you've been in, in the church any amount of time, you can take an educated guess. I'm going to say that's Peter. And you would be right. John's gospel confirms that. <clears throat> now, Peter's sword is not really a sword. It, it's a large ceremonial knife. It's not like the swords that the Romans carry. Uh, but in typical Peter fashion, he's going to use this thing as a big Roman sword. He's going to start swinging this thing around. Now, let's pause and let's just consider Peter's resume here. Peter is a professional fisherman turned seminary student. How much weapons training? How, much, how many self-defense classes do you think Peter's taken over the years? Zilch, you know, zilch, right? And then on the other hand, you've got the Roman soldiers, and these men are so well trained that they can take their sword... And they can split their enemy's helmet and their skull in two with one blow. 
They're so well-trained, they, they know precisely how to slit someone's throat or to plunge a dagger into somebody's heart. And it's really important for us to understand that because the Romans speak one language, and that language is violence. Regardless, Peter doesn't think through his plan nor the consequences. He pulls out his knife and he goes for the throat of the high priest's servant. His name is Malchus. Malchus, he's got cat-like reflexes, right? He misses the throat and somehow goes for his ear, cuts off his ear. Interesting little tidbit here in verse, in verse 47. The picture is not that he cut off this man's ear, but it really it was torn off. It was ripped off. Why? Because Peter's knife is so dull. He didn't even sharpen the knife. So on one scene, we've got 600 Roman soldiers. In addition, we, we've got all these temple police. We've got other people there. They're carrying swords and weapons who know how to use them. On the other side, we've got one guy. We've got Peter with his short, dull knife. Now, Dr. Luke tells us that Jesus steps in, heals the man's ear. And by the way, Jesus also saves Peter's life that night. If Jesus wouldn't have healed Malchus's ear, those soldiers would have killed Peter. And we'll get to why here in a moment. So, what do you think was going through Peter's mind for him to pull this crazy stunt? I mean, what was he thinking? Can you imagine being pulled over by Cottonwood PD, and all of a sudden the sheriff's department shows up, and then you got the state police, and then finally the FBI, and before you know it, you've got a hundred officers around you with guns drawn. And you decide that you're going to take out your little pocket knife. <laughs> That's as dull as a letter opener. And you're going to go after one of them. How's that going to work for you? <laughs> Gary, you're our resident Police off, retired police officer. How well is that going to go over for, for somebody doing that? <laughs> Not well at all. Over your 20, 30 years of being PD, have you ever seen that work out well? <laughs> Never, right? I've seen a lot. <laughs> so what was Peter thinking? Or was he, was he not thinking at all? Now, before you answer that, keep in mind what Peter just saw. He heard Jesus with two words say, I am. And those two words put all those soldiers, all those politicians, all the religious leaders on their back. So, is it possible at this moment, with all these soldiers, all these politicians around, Peter still thinks that Jesus, as the Messiah, he's going to overthrow Rome and free all the Jews from oppression? It's a very good possibility. <laughs> so, can't you just... Picture Peter screaming at Jesus, say it again, say it again. And he, he pulls out his, his short, dull knife, right? Jesus doesn't say, I am again. Jesus is not a magician. Jesus is on a mission to save mankind. So, so we learn from Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, he says, put your sword back in its place, Peter, because all who take up the sword are going to perish by the sword. Uh-oh. Jesus just confirmed the, the Old Testament law of capital punishment. He says, Peter, if you kill someone, you are going to be killed yourself. That's not how we do things. 
Verse 53, do you think that I cannot call on my father and he's going to provide me right here, right now, more than 12 legions of angels? Now keep in mind, a Roman legion is 6,000 soldiers. And Jesus says, Peter, listen to me. I've got 12 legions, not of soldiers, but of angels. So 12 times 6 is 72 thousand angels ready and waiting. And not only that, but scripture tells us in second Kings uh, 1935, that one, one angel killed 185,000 soldiers in one night. Now I'm not that good at math, but I'm guessing Jesus has this situation handled. Not too shabby. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm not going to call them. I have to do this. I have to be in the center of my father's will. So what? understand what's happening. Jesus is in the center of God's will, of the father's will. God the father uses man's hate of himself to save them. Now, some of you may be asking, well, wait a second. What's Peter What's he doing with a weapon anyway? Well, carrying a sword for protection during Passover, that was common. Uh, keep in mind, the first century, incredibly violent. Incredibly violent. And not only that, but in Luke's gospel, Jesus encourages his disciples to buy swords. Now, that's a different sermon for another day. Don't get too excited about that. But Peter, think about this. Peter has good intentions. He has good intentions to protect Jesus, but just keep in mind, Jesus doesn't want protecting. Peter's good intentions could have been disastrous for the church. I mean, what would have happened if those soldiers decided to kill Jesus right then and there? Because of Peter's actions. Jesus is dead. What's that mean? No cross no salvation, and everybody is going to a very real place called hell. And that, my friends, is Satan's plan, is that Jesus dies before or after the cross, after this Passover. So, over the last couple of weeks, we keep saying the 12 disciples, they, rep they represent us as disciples today. So think about it. How many times have you stepped in to the in the middle of what, what God's doing, God's work, and you've got in his way because you didn't think something through. So once again, this narrative, it shows us how we all have a bad case of the normals. Brings us to key point number one. At times, we all have a sincere but misplaced loyalty to Jesus. At times, we all have a sincere but misplaced loyalty to Jesus. Jesus' disciples, they were, they, they were prepared to die for him, but they were not prepared to die with him. And my friends, that's a massive difference in how you view your life with Jesus. So verse 48, Jesus said to them, Have you guys come out with swords and clubs as if I'm a criminal to capture me? So the idea here is that Jesus, they think Jesus is, is a violent man and he's going to escape at any cost. That's what they think. They think he's a revolutionary. 
Verse 49, he goes on, he says, every day I was among you teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. So the temple is the most public place in all of Israel. Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy. So Jesus at this moment, think about it, he's physically tied up. He has his hands behind his back with other soldiers who have their hands on him. Other soldiers, they've got their swords and they've got clubs in Jesus's face. And Jesus at the same time is calling these men cowards. And they know they're cowards because he, his question exposed their fear of him and the people. Jesus goes on in verse 49. He says, but, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. So Jesus' statement here really, once again, it shows the submission to the Father's plan. His arrest sets in motion now a supernatural set of, of dominoes that must happen for our salvation to take place. Jesus said in uh, Luke's gospel, he says, every day while I was with you in the temple, you guys never laid a hand on me. But now this is your hour. This is the hour, this is the dominion of darkness. So it's at this moment that Jesus anticipated in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is now ready to face the wrath of man and the wrath of God. And it's at this moment, verse 50, where the disciples all deserted him and they ran away. The disciples' faith completely collapses when the disciples realized that Jesus was not going to defend himself, they all fled, just like the Old Testament said. And just like Jesus reiterated, not even, not even Peter proved to be the exception to the uh, prophecy like he promised. Now, verse 51, now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following him, and they caught a hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and he ran away naked. Now pause. Who cares about this guy? We just read the incomprehensible story of sinful people seizing and arresting the one true living God. And then Mark tells us this. So what do verses 51 and 52 have to do with anything? What, 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 do, do we have... We got something, someone rip out a page of our Bibles? What's the context here? Why does Mark insert such a trivial detail into the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus Christ? Well, some people have suggested that this naked man is Mark himself, our gospel writer. This was a common way for writers to insert themselves into the narrative without them saying their name. John does this. He does it in the Gospel of John and in uh, 1 John. Um, boy, this is a sermon for another day. He calls himself the one that Jesus loved. <laughs> Whew. The only problem with this author insertion theory is that nothing in the, in the text itself indicates that this is actually Mark. Other people say that, that Mark's point in verses 51 and 52, it, it 
emphasizes the isolation, the betrayal of all the disciples at that moment because Jesus, he's now facing his destiny alone, just as scripture said. Others believe that this last scene is a picture of the gospel spreading out in every direction, even though everything looks hopeless. But once again, all of those ideas are based on speculation. And dear friends, speculation is never a good characteristic when you interpret Scripture. So let's look at what we know. Verse 51. Now a certain young man, he's wearing nothing but a linen cloth. He was following him. And they caught a hold of him. But he left the linen cloth behind and he ran away naked. So we know that this man was wearing a linen covering underneath his tunic. Now please know only the wealthy were able to do that. So this man is a person of wealth. And because this man was dressed in this way, all he had was just that linen, that linen covering, we know that he left his home in a hurry because he didn't, ha- he didn't have his coat on. He didn't have his outer garment on, that tunic. And, and we know from John's gospel that it's cold. So he leaves his home in a hurry. He most likely lived in Jerusalem because that's where the soldiers came from. They went from the city of Jerusalem up the Mount of Olives. Nobody lives up there. We know that, um, well, it's it's a possibility that as the, the soldiers pass by his home, he probably wakes up. He hears all the commotion of a thousand people. He decides to see what's going on. We also know that verse 52 says that he runs away naked. <laughs> now, is that, impor- is that really that important? Do we really have to know that? What do you think? What's that, Gary? Am I going to tell you? It is. It really is important to understand. Why, what does nakedness represent in Scripture? If you were to do a word study on nakedness, what's it, what's it mean? In the Garden of Eden, the the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they were naked, but without shame, right? Until they chose to sin. And when they chose to sin, they became very aware of their nudity. So they covered themselves. They covered themselves, and we, we've all been hiding from our shame ever since. So how do you and I, apart from God now, how do we deal with sin and shame in our lives? We, we, we act like Adam and Eve, right? We, we hide, we get away from God, we hide in the darkness, and we cover it up, just like Adam and Eve. But what's the solution? Because hiding and covering things up, that's just a temporary Band-Aid. So is this anonymous naked man running away from Jesus, is it really a trivial detail in this story? Everybody go like this. Here's why. When God speaks of bringing judgment against the guilty, he does it by exposing sin and stripping people of their clothes. Let me show you a few passages here. The prophet Amos, chapter 2, verse 16. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. And then he goes on to say, this is the Lord's declaration. I will promise you this is going to happen. Revelation chapter 3 verse 17, you say, this is, this is to the church, right? You say, I'm rich, 
I have become wealthy and, and I don't need anything. And Jesus says, you guys don't realize, man, you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Wow. Is that a message for the American church today? Revelation 16, 15, Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and, and people see his shame. So the concept of, of clothing and nakedness, it is at the heart of understanding what Jesus is doing at this moment as he's being arrested. Because God had to buy us back, right? It's called redemption. God redeemed us. His perfect life is a substitute for our pathetic life. The only way any of us will be able to stand in the presence of a holy God is for us to be stripped of our filthy rags, of what we call good works or good deeds, and we have to put on garments of Christ's righteousness. Verses 51 and 52 of this man running away from God naked is at the heart of the gospel. Dear friends, even though we didn't want God, God wanted us. It is God who provided a covering for our sin and for our shame and for our nakedness. I find it so, in, uh, this is fascinating. Verse 52 talks about this man's nakedness twice. He says he left the linen cloth behind and then he ran away naked. Now remember these men and these women that we're reading about, it's a picture of us. We've all abandoned Jesus. We've all turned our backs. We've all gone our own way. And under the same circumstances, the same conditions, we too, apart from God himself now, we would, we would leave everything to save our own skin, just like these disciples did, just like this young man did. How do we know this to be true? Because the, the word tells us. It is written in Romans 3.10. There's nobody who's righteous. Not even one. Not even one. There's no one who understands. Nobody knows the mind of God. There is no one who seeks God. You are not born a Christian. All have turned away. All have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good. Once again, not even one. If this is your first time at River Bible Church, we want to welcome you <laughs> to the good news being proclaimed. This anonymous naked man running away from Jesus is a picture of me and you guys. And yet, as everybody else leaves Jesus, what's Jesus do? Stay. He stays. It goes to prove that if we could lose our salvation, we would. Because Jesus is faithful, we are faithless. And the timing of this sermon could not be more appropriate than for today because the whole world is experiencing the judgment of God through this thing called COVID, something that we can't even see. And we are now living under the judgment of God. We will be tested and tried like never before in our lifetime. You thought not having enough toilet paper was going to be bad. <laughs> Dear friends, we now live in an age to where the church will have to prove 
that we are who we say we are, that we are Christians, just like the disciples. Notice they did not do things perfectly. See, if we believe what we say we believe about God, then we, we need to act like we need to act like it as these consequences come. Because the gospel does not promise hope for a better tomorrow. The gospel doesn't promise that. This is not your best life now. The gospel does promise, however, hope for a better life after you die. The reason that you're here today in the church is to worship God. It is to experience God verse by verse. And because you're here, whether you know this or not, you're actually preparing for these trials that we're talking about. Just as Jesus was preparing his disciples for their trials, you're preparing for your personal Gethsemane. And those who prepare for trials first endure the best. As the church, we must endure together. As Americans, we generally think we got things under control. As Christians, we realize we don't. So, dear friends, let me remind you that you are temporary citizens of this great country, and you are permanent citizens of the kingdom of God. All that to say, you've got nothing to fear as the world continues to freak out. But you do have a choice. The choice is this, are you going to stay and pray like we learned last week, or are you, going to, are you going to kiss the church and flee like the disciples did this week? That's a decision that we all have to make. Father in heaven, what an amazing scripture passage this morning, that you would use sinful man to lay hands on the Son of God. Lord, we worship you this morning because you are the son of God. You are the son of man, that you have indeed taken our place. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who, who doesn't understand the gospel or who has questions about who you are, Father, do not let them leave here until they, uh, they get those questions answered, until someone prays for them. Someone spends time with them. Nothing is more important than their spiritual health today. Lord, continue to teach us now as we fellowship together, as we leave this week, what it looks like to minister to a dying Verde Valley. Lord, please give us these God intersections throughout the week. I pray for divine disruptions that we would indeed do the one thing that you've called the church to do, and that is to share the gospel and to make disciples. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.